0: Good morning, and as Michael said, we're so glad that you decided to join us and worship online with us here. My name is Ali Shulman. I'm one of the pastors here, and if you were with us last week, then you know that we kicked off a sermon series for Lent. Lent is the season that leads up to Easter, and we have a tradition here at the Grove that every Lent we pick a book of the Bible and we walk through that book together. We read it together. We study it together. And there's a few ways that we do this. One is the scripture reading plan. So hopefully you've got one of these or you downloaded one of these. And we're already a little ways into it in the Gospel of John. We also have the Lent Bible study that Stephen and I do. And we go through some close readings of scriptures that we don't get to in the sermons. And then, of course, the sermons themselves where we're talking through a certain book of the Bible. And the reason that we do this is because we believe that scripture reading is the number one way that you can get to know God. It is a fundamental way to get to know who God is. We believe this and know this because God said it himself, that scripture was the primary way that he reveals himself to us. And that's all fine and good, but if you're a little ways into your scripture reading plan, you might be at a place where you're like, that's wonderful, And the Bible is kind of hard. It's a really hard book. There's a lot of context that speaks into it that maybe we don't know right off the top of our heads. It's a bunch of different books compiled into one big book, and it can be kind of challenging to navigate. And so today, we're going to do something a little different for this sermon. I thought, as I was thinking about you guys in your homes reading through these these scripture reading plans, I was like, man... We need to kind of teach them how to approach the Bible. How do you tackle the Bible? So today, we are going to get our Bibles. So if you have a Bible at home, go ahead and grab it. You can pull up a different tab on your computer and just type into Google John 1. We're going to go through this passage that I'm speaking on today. We'll go through it together, and then I'll do what I normally do and share my thoughts on it. But my hope is that by reading it together, we can better understand how to tackle Scripture in general. So go ahead and grab your Bible, and you can open it up. But while you're doing that, I wanted to share with you a little tidbit, a tidbit that really changed the way that I viewed Scripture forever. It was a tidbit that was shared by a seminary professor of mine. And On the first day of class, she said, there are two questions you should ask whenever you're approaching a scriptural text. The first is, what does this tell me about God? And the second is, based on this answer, What response am I called to? I'll repeat those in case you want to write them down. The first is, what does this tell me about God? And the second is, based on that answer, what does this tell me about how I should respond or what I am called to? So every time we open the Bible, every time we read it, those are the questions that are guiding us in our reading. And ironically, those questions are also the questions that the author of the Gospel of John is asking. In fact, John is a really interesting gospel because John, the author, had the luxury of writing his gospel at the latest time period. So he had the ability to reflect back on the other gospels and form his own. And when he did, he did it with a very specific purpose in mind, a very specific audience he was trying to convince, that Jesus, in fact, was Messiah. And lucky for us, John actually summed up his purpose in a very matter-of-fact, explicit verse that we talked about last week. In 2031, John says, these things are written so that you may know that Jesus is Messiah, and by believing, you may have life in his name. You see, John was trying to answer those questions of what is this text that I'm writing going to tell us about God? And then, by believing in this text, you will have life in God's name. Now, we're going to open our Bibles You're John 1, but I want you to go to John 35. And we're going to explore a little bit about how John answers these questions for himself. How does he craft the text in order to help us understand a little bit better? So find verse 35 wherever you are. before you start reading, it's always important to look, ahead, look behind and look at what the context is. So in this case, I'll tell you. John the Baptist is who has been talked about in the last few verses. So John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin, and he was a preacher as well and a teacher as well. And he taught to many that Jesus was coming, and he acquired his own disciples, his own students. And that's where we're beginning on verse 35. So will you read with me? The next day... And they came and saw where he was staying. And they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. Okay, let's pause there. Whenever you're reading a narrative or a story, it's really important to pause every few verses to make sure you understand the plot of what just happened. So let's do a quick recap. John the Baptist is with his disciples, and he sees Jesus walk by. And when he does, he has this exclamation, look, there's the Lamb of God. And if I were reading this on my own, I might circle the Lamb of God. It's an odd phrase, considering Jesus hasn't done anything yet, like at all. But it's a very specific phrase. Lamb, when we think of Lamb and God, automatically the hearers, the people who are listening to the story or reading this story, they would think of the Passover sacrifice. You see, if you remember that story, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt and God was sending plagues. And the final plague... Was that every first boy born would die. In order to save the Israelites, they had to sacrifice a lamb and then put the blood over their doorway, and in that way, God would pass over their homes. You see, lambs had this image of sacrifice, of protection, of covering. You see, John is trying to tell us something about God in that very simple phrase he puts at the beginning of this passage, really early on in his book. So let's keep reading. We're at verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of God. You are called Cephas, which is translated Peter. So as I read this and we're talking about all whose brother is who and who is talking to who, the thing that I notice most is these little parenthetical phrases that John puts in, which is translated, which is translated. He's really being intentional that the people who are reading this understand what's going on. And while it doesn't come across in English, the words that come before the parenthetical phrases, those are Aramaic. They're the language that Jesus spoke. And then he's translating them into Greek for his Greek readers. It must have been really important for John to emphasize that Jesus was from Galilee, that he was an Israelite, that he belonged to a particular community, that he, in short, was human and just one of us. So let's keep reading. We're at 43. And don't worry if you're there saying, like, oh, my gosh, how long is she going to go? We're only going to go to 51. So 43. Let's start. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him about whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's a phrase that's used in a different gospel in a different context. Philip said to him, Come and see. And when Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said to him, Here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, where did you get to know me? And Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. And Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And he said to him, Jesus answered, do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And that's where we're going to close out today. So we go back and we look at these verses, and you'll obviously see a theme. It's when Jesus is starting to gather his disciples, right? And they all come in different ways, some word of mouth. Nathanael comes to Jesus and maybe just a little bit curious and Jesus recognizes him and Nathanael is surprised and immediately believes and follows Jesus. But there's this theme of invitation and following that John wants us to know. But let's go back to those two questions. What does this text tell me about God? And we'll get to the second question later. Let's just start with the first. What does this tell me about God? Well, luckily, John is one of the most explicit writers when it comes to the Gospels. John doesn't bat around. He's very clear who he believes God is. He's very clear who you need to believe God is. In fact, in this text, look at all those names. Do you want to count them for a second? Let's see. There's Lamb of God, Rabbi, Messiah. There's also the one whom Moses wrote about in the Prophets. There's the one who's the king, son of God, king of Israel, and then the final one that Jesus tells himself is son of man in my translation, and yours it might be the human one, seven. Seven names, and you might know this already, but seven is a very important number in all of this literature in the Bible, but it's specifically among the Israelites, Seven was this number of completion. Obviously, God created the world in seven days, so it's this number of completion of everything being fulfilled. It's this number of everything coming to realization. You see, John gave Jesus seven names so that we could know that Jesus, this rabbi from Nazareth, was everything the Israelites expected and more. Just by those names, Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Lamb of God. He is the Messiah. One person wrote, by putting all these, these names together, he said, basically, John is claiming, and wait for this, the fully human Jesus from Nazareth is the messianic king or rabbi of Israel and the Son of God who will die for the sins of the world. That is a really big claim. But that's what John wants us to know. He wants us to know right here at the very beginning of our book how important this figure of Jesus is. And so in his intro, which John 1 is in totality, he makes sure that we know it. So it's clear to us what John is trying to tell us about who God is. But then we get to this second question, right? Based on that answer, based on what John shows us about Jesus, What response are we called to? Sometimes the easiest way to figure this out is by locating yourself in the story. Especially when there are narratives and stories like this, it's a little bit easier. It's really easy in this one because there's basically only two types of people. There's Jesus, who is God, and then there's the disciples. And let me tell you really quick, if you haven't figured it out, you're the disciples, you're not Jesus. So in the disciples, we're trying to learn what our response should be. What are we called to? And I think there's little things you could read into how they invite people and how they follow Jesus and what they give up. But I think in general, if we zoom out a little bit, what all of the people, all five of the disciples that are recognized in this passage, what they all do is they become disciples. That's the main thing that they do in this text. They become disciples. And that's really interesting for us if we zoom in a little bit more. You won't need your Bibles. You can set it aside for now. Because the thing about disciples is that it wasn't a new concept. Often when we think about disciples, we immediately think of Jesus and think this was this very particular thing that he just happened to attract all of these followers and they became his disciples, and it was unique. But it wasn't. In first century Palestine and and before that and before that and before that, in Judaism, it was very common to have this idea of discipleship. You would have a rabbi or a teacher, and they would gather disciples. And it wasn't just that these disciples were students. It was that they would give up their whole lives, their whole careers, what they were planning to do, their towns. They would often travel to be with the rabbi. And so John Mark Comer, in his recent book, says he thinks a better description of a disciple is really an apprentice. And I agree, Because that notion of giving up your entire life to go follow someone doesn't quite fit this understanding of of being a student and learning. It's more robust than that. And so if we think of the disciples as responding by becoming apprentices, our view starts to change a little bit. Their response to Jesus starts to change. Because when you think about what an apprentice means, what do apprentices do, You have this image of apprentices, our students, who give up their lives often, leave home, move in with a teacher or a master, and that master is in charge of teaching them the fundamentals of whatever the craft is. They give them the technical knowledge, the parameters in which they can work, and then it's the student's job to then take those parameters and try to form their own creative expression of how that could look. They contextualize their practice, in other words. So, to be a blacksmith, you have to know certain parameters around what it means to be a blacksmith, and then you can take that knowledge and turn it into something creative, and you can be in a certain context. Like one blacksmith can make swords, and another can make horseshoes. There are different contexts to apply your craft. In a lot of ways, I think this is exactly what it means to be a disciple, and I think this is exactly what the disciples are doing when they sit at the feet of Jesus, when they come to his home, it's a different type of craft, but a craft it is because what they are learning is how to live like Jesus. What they are learning is how to be like Jesus. It's not just following his decisions, it's not just looking at his values. You see, Jesus is setting these parameters for him by how he lives. He's setting this foundation for them. And they, as the craftsmen, as the students, will take that information back into their homes and start to contextualize their experience so they can live it out in a very different way. They learned from Jesus how to live like Jesus. And that is essentially what an apprentice is. And this fits so well with one particular thing that John does in his book. You see, believing is a really important concept in John, if you didn't catch on. I mean, it's in his like verse that he writes the purpose of the book, right? He says, by believing, you will have life in his name. But what's interesting about that word believing as compared to the other gospels is that in John, that version of the word believing is always a verb. He never uses the term belief or have faith, which the other gospels do and frequently. But John is adamant. Believing? Believing is living. Believing is active. It is an active commitment to a lifestyle. It is an active commitment to following. It is an active commitment to being a disciple. And for John, that isn't just this intellectual pursuit. It is something that takes hold of you. It is something that you craft. It is something that you learn from. And then you do. All of that is well and good. You're like, great. They had the ability to take Jesus' life and replicate it. They had the ability to apprentice with Jesus. But what about us? Our context is nothing like theirs. I mean, we're not a single guy in the first century Palestine, right? There's so much different about our lives, and that can be hard. But I, I think there's a way that we can get to the answer. I think there's a way that we can start to form our own craft of what it means to apprentice with Jesus. And it's a version of a question you've heard before. When I was growing up, I remember going to camp, and there were these girls that had these bracelets like all up and down their arms and all different colors because that was very trendy. And those bracelets had four initials on them. They said WWJD. And it was very cool in the 90s to have those bracelets and to ask yourself the question, what would Jesus do? And all in all, it was a great question, right? And, And that's one that we ask ourselves a lot. But I think that question can be modified a bit can be modified to fit our age. Because I think the question actually should be, what would Jesus do if he were you? What would Jesus do if he were you? If he were a newly divorced mom trying to meet the ends. If he were a father of three with three grown children trying to figure out how to parent in this lifetime. If you were facing a chronic illness, how would Jesus face those troubles too. What would Jesus do if he were you? That question is one that's essential for us to answer if we are going to be disciples of Jesus. We need to be asking ourselves that question with every decision that we make. And you might say, well, great, but I didn't get that initial foundation that Jesus gave the disciples. I didn't get to apprentice with Jesus. I didn't get to learn from him. But you do, because God tells us that he reveals himself in scripture. And so as you read scripture, you start to see who God is. You start to see the parameters of, he's always going to choose presence over hurry. He's always going to choose generosity over scarcity. He's always going to choose love over fear. And you start to understand where you can craft your life from. Now, for us, going back into the scripture tells us a little bit about his parameters. When I go back and look at this text, when I ask myself who God is, it's not just the names of Jesus that ring true to me. I see a God Who is primarily invitational? He is extending invitations left and right. Follow me, come and see, follow me, come and see. Those are the invitations Jesus extends not only in this part of the book, but throughout. Jesus is an invitational God, and it is us who has to respond to that invitation. And sometimes, Like in the scripture, we can take it as a singular invitation, a a static one, like a one-time thing. Jesus extends the invitation, come and follow me. And sometime in your 20s, you made the decision to follow him, and now you're following him. But I think that's a misunderstanding of how much Jesus asked that question. And sometimes to the same people. I think what God is trying to tell us in this passage is that it's not a single invitation. To be apprentice to Jesus means that you receive that invitation every time you make a decision. Every juncture of your life, there is an invitation waiting for you. An invitation that says, follow me when you do your taxes. Follow me when you buy that new house. Follow me when you decide where to put your kids in school. Follow me when you pass someone who's asking for money on the side of the street. Follow me when you're in the middle of a heated argument. Follow me at every juncture of your life and you will have life in my name. You will have the life that you long for. You will have the life that you want. You will have the life that gives you more time and more space and more love and more peace and more joy because that is what being an apprentice of Jesus gets you in this life, not just in the life to come. And now this is hard right? It's hard, and you'll mess up. You'll get invitations to follow me, and you'll say, no, thank you. That feels too hard. And you'll do it multiple times, over and over again. But the disciples messed up a lot. One of them betrayed him to his death. A couple of them denied him. We don't know what happened to the others, but maybe not so great. They made mistakes. They rejected those invitations. But the good news is that you don't have to be perfect all the time. You don't have to accept those invitations over and over and over again. Even if you wander super far outside the parameters that Jesus sets, there's another invitation waiting for you to come back, always. Because Jesus, in John 1, in this particular passage, is invitational and he will invite you again and again and again, no matter how far you wander. Let us pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for revealing yourself to us in scripture. Thank you for letting us have this text, for letting us think about you and know about you, even though we weren't alive when you were there. Lord we want to accept your invitations we want to accept them as they come but we know we mess up sometimes we say no thank you for letting us back in thank you for extending that invitation again we're so thankful for you and help us craft our lives help us be apprentices of yours that we may grow in the faith and that we may have life In your name, amen.